there's something called social cohesion, which means I've, I've formed a bond to where I'm, I'm going to put the needs of that person or that group above my own self-centered needs. Every part of the daily practices of how we were fighting, how we were living, was bonding us together. Um, there is a, a limit to knowing somebody at an interpersonal level. Um, I think it maxes out like at 150, which oddly is about the max of a company. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and this episode was a special one for me because I got the chance to talk about a fascinating subject with a colleague that has been a really influential part of MWI since the organization's beginning. Many listeners will know John Spencer. He's MWI's chair of urban warfare studies and one of the foremost experts on the subject of urban warfare. But he also spent 25 years as an infantry soldier and officer. Based on his experiences and a lot of research, he recently finished a book called Connected Soldiers. The book weaves together a number of themes, but chief among them is the importance of cohesion in military units. He talks specifically about the way that technology, social media and smartphones and constant connectivity with the outside world can disrupt what he calls the band of brothers effect, the process of building that cohesion. It's a really interesting discussion full of insights, not just from his extensive research, but also from his firsthand experience leading soldiers in combat. Before we get to it, though, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're enjoying the MWI podcast, wherever you're listening, please take a second to give it a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with John Spencer. John, thank you for joining me on the MWI podcast. Hey, well, thanks for having me back. It's it's a, it's an honor you know, and a privilege for sure. So many listeners will recognize your name. Many will recognize your voice. You're, uh, uh, you know, a pretty central feature of the MWI landscape. You've been on the MWI podcast before. You've been on the Spear, our podcast that that explores the combat experience. Uh, you host your own podcast for MWI, the Urban Warfare Project podcast. You're the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI. Uh, you're really involved with so much that MWI does, and uh, you know, I guess that's fitting for somebody who was really one of the founders of the organization. I don't. I don't think I'd be wrong in saying that you're probably best known for, uh, for your urban warfare work. Uh, but I invited you on to talk about something very different. Actually, you wrote a book that was recently published. It's called Connected Soldiers, and you know, it's it's a lot of things. It's part memoir. It's it's part leadership study. It's got combat stories. Um, but the sort of one piece of it that I really want to focus the conversation on today is the discussion of uh, cohesion, particularly small unit cohesion, but but cohesion in a military context. So to kick off that discussion, um, I, I think I'd first like to ask you about the title. As I said, it's called Connected Soldiers, but because I've had the the uh, you know the good fortune to work with you and and really watch as you worked on the book over over several years, I know that you submitted the manuscript, I think, with the title Connected Brothers, which itself is is a spin on uh, Band of Brothers, the you know the famous and very well known Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks miniseries that was that was itself based on um, Stephen Ambrose's book of the same name about a single infantry company during the course of World War II. So I'd like to ask, I guess, you know, why choose that as sort of the framework? Yeah, um, absolutely. So you know, one Band of Brothers, the title was taken, um, but the 
the actual ideals that come out of that very popular miniseries, which is amazing and one of my most favorite of all, really resonate with me. And I think they resonate with many soldiers, this ideal of bonding and brotherhood that come out in the movie. And I, I even say in the book, it's become synonymous in my mind with the band of brothers effect, which is this ideal that goes back to antiquity, uh, really the antiquity of war, that war is a group thing and, and you form these lifelong bonds that really become your identity with the people that you're fighting with. And this is the research that I start to weave in there, but it, that this ideal is that kernel of almost like a briar in my shoe that I, I couldn't let go of, even though, like you said, I, you know, there, there's a lot in my book that is related to cohesion in the combat experience, but it's really also how to deal with toxic leaders. It, it's a little bit of everything, but that kernel of the ideal of serving in the military from when I was a kid came to me through popular media. And sometimes you don't know if that's just, you know, uh, romance of war, things like that, that are just getting from great books to TV series to cartoons about war. That is really not true. But as I grew up in the military, that, that I, that very base theory or ideal of the band of brothers, it has been proven scientifically and to name now has been proving, it's been proven from my own experiences of living through the war uh, that that gets exposed so many times, but it's true that there's something very core, very primal to the combat experience for combat soldiers of of doing it for each other and forming these primary bonds, the primary groups that are what actually experiences the war. People like simple ideals to simplify the complex and war is complex and even leading men in combat is complex but that ideal that cohesion is the really one of the founding blocks of how it all works really you know i really motivated me and and, and i struggled with it at times when I, I felt like i didn't feel it but it was there um but i don't i think from the start of war to the future of war this human need for these bonds to do war to and and then to live with war i think are such like literally um i don't know what the right word is to it but like a primary code of how it all works you know i don't want to fixate too much on 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 details and lose sight of the bigger and and more meaningful picture but you know what is it? Uh, what is cohesion? You can watch the the series that we talked about, or read the book uh, Band of Brothers, and and probably have a pretty intuitive sense of of what it means. I suppose you could look it up in the dictionary. Uh, you know, but as you worked on the book, did you come across a particular definition that that really captured its essence uh, for you, that resonated with you? And if not, you know, how would you put it into words, particularly based on your experiences? Sure. So. I one was I, I, I quickly realized, and, and it wasn't until I found this diagram that showed the military system, that you know, none of these things work independent of themselves. Like you could be, you could literally deploy with your brother, somebody that you love, uh, and you're willing to die for, like your family member, somebody you grew up with. But it cohesion is, so let me answer the question. The, the definition that I feel comfortable with as I found Although there's two forms of cohesion, I had to quickly 
wrestle with with the two. There's something called social cohesion, which means I've I've formed a bond with another human uh, through interpersonal relationships that then establishes a bond between the two of us or a group of us to where I'm I identify with that person or that group where I'm going to put the needs of that person or that group above my own self-centered needs. So that's like the base definition of social cohesion. But what I had to wrestle with it, there's actually something called task cohesion, which which is really funny in some fields of study, like sports, they, they view task cohesion as more important than social cohesion. As in task cohesion is when the group or a group of individuals agree that they can only accomplish a task working together, like winning a, a sports game or winning in combat. It, it is it absolutely true that once you identify with the group, you understand that the your own survival only works if we all agree on what the task is to do. But where social cohesion comes into effect is where I'm, I'm literally bonded to another individual where I'm willing to sacrifice my own needs and in the reality of war. And it's not romance. I'm willing to die for the person to my left or right because I'm so bonded to them in this complex thing that is we only survive as a group, but I I'm willing to sacrifice for that person in that group because I've identified with it. It's it's so it's really hard to understand if you if you've experienced it, but it's very primal. But it's it's scientific actually. So of those two, social cohesion and and task cohesion that you mentioned, social cohesion obviously is is more relevant, as you said, in a military context. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned sports as being a context in which task cohesion might be more important. Kobe and Shaq, you know, really did not like each other all that much, but they won a whole lot of basketball games and, and three NBA championships together. Acknowledging that the military case is fundamentally unique, um, especially in combat environments. Could a military unit get by uh, even without social cohesion as long as they had task cohesion, which, you know, it seems more trainable uh, could they get by and 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 you know perform effectively and and really be optimized for the mission at hand? So uh, it's hard to say if you if you have this but not that will it still work. In some cases, absolutely. But war will expose weaknesses, even of a small team. War, as in literally the struggle for life and death, will expose your weaknesses. So yes, if you have task cohesion, you're going to be a very strong team. But without social cohesion, when put to the test where a single member of that team has to now sacrifice themselves for another person, then at, in, the, the, in the crucible of combat, it will not work, even though you all agree that we all have to do our part. But doing your part is a lot different than I'm willing to sacrifice to be a part of this team or to for that person. I love that other person. And I don't take I don't use those words lightly. Um, so I get this a lot, like, what if I don't like that person? Right. So I've had plenty of people, even in combat, like that dude's a butthole, you know, use the term. I don't like that person. Uh, but I'm willing to, to put myself in bodily harm for that person. Because even if I don't look, you know, like, or love that one person, I, it is a part of me that I'm a part of this group and I'm willing to sacrifice for this group and even for the person that I may not like at that moment, if that makes sense. It's a, it's a, it, this is tough stuff. 
So I mentioned uh, that the book is based on, well, the, the, the book's roots can sort of be traced back to this op-ed you wrote in the New York Times in 2015, uh, in which you contrasted your experience as a platoon leader uh, in Iraq during the invasion in 2003 to a later deployment as a company commander uh, in 2008. It, what changes, I guess, specifically with respect to cohesion, did you notice between those two deployments? Right. So, you know, you can only say so much in an op-ed. Uh, the op-ed did start it all, but, you know, it's 800 words. And and one of the reasons that I had to go through this, the way to tell the story I wanted to, is I wanted to show pre-instant connections of the world. Because I, I deployed in 2003 when there was no connections to the outside world. It literally was every ideal I had of war. Uh, of writing letters on cardboard boxes back home because soldiers want to be connected to home to sitting around, a, you know, not a campfire, but a, a Humvee top, just spending hours and hours getting to know somebody at, at a very personal level. And I showed through in 2003, how the daily practices, and I didn't realize them until I went back and tried to analyze them. Every part of the daily practices of how we were fighting, how we were living um, and just spending our time was bonding us together. I was getting to know people. I was sharing with other people. Uh, when we had firefights or combat engagements, we came back as a group and talked about it together because there was nothing else to do. Right? We, it, we weren't connected. There wasn't no other way to spend our time. Uh, so I fast forwarded to, to 2008, and this is what I, I, I show in the op-ed, is that when I deployed to 2008, the not only was it a different army made up of different individuals, it was a different mission, uh, as in that what you did every day to go out and combat your enemy was different, but also the world had changed. We were all connected. I had multiple cell phones. You could come back. It wasn't on a, you were on a big fob. You could come back to your literal, um, sandbox of a, of a JSS or, or combat outpost and, and connect to your outside world, your other su social support networks to have a foot back home, which has pluses and minuses in the op-ed and in the book, one of the strongest, because people learn through stories, what the, the story that I told in the op-ed, which is in the book in more detail, was a patrol in 2008 where a platoon of mine was out. Um, they get attacked by an enemy by a, a grenade over a T-wall and the grenade doesn't hit them at all. It, it actually hits between two vehicles and and sprays the explosion into an Iraqi kid in the middle of the, you know, in, in on this Iraqi street, which they were driving on. And it was a real traumatic episode for all of us. Even I showed up and, and, and the kid was gone, but just hearing the story, but also looking into the eyes of people that I knew personally and, and seeing that this event had traumatized them. No, because there are very traumatic episodes in war. So I went away as a company commander, went back to follow my report or you know, do other things. And I, about an hour or two later, when I knew the platoon was back on the cop, I went to go talk to them about it, right? As a leader should, you know, see how people are dealing with, with that event, whether it was a, any type of engagement, it, it was a combat hardship. It was, it was an event and they were all connected. And this is the part of the connected. They were all connected on some type of either cell phone or computer terminal talking to people they care about back home. This is the part of cohesion that I didn't even realize in my studies until I really started to, to pull back the onion is that cohesion allows soldiers to, 
to survive combat. Like they have to rely on other people. And that's part of the bond is, is that vulnerability when I'm relying on the person to my left or right for my own survival, but then I'm also willing to lay down my life for the other person's survival because we are a group. Um, what I didn't realize is that that bond was also what allowed soldiers to deal with experiencing combat. It's a coping mechanism. Throughout history, you, you read about in the old, all the old books, you come back and, and, the, and the people that just did that event, whatever it is, you know, storm uh, the castle, whatever, they're, they're together again, eating, sitting around the campfire, they're talking about it. I didn't realize that that was part of the coping mechanism. So this one event exposed one that now individuals are staying connected to their loved ones back home, staying bonded to the people they care about. Uh, they're also getting the stresses of home all throughout their combat experience. Doesn't matter what's going on in combat. They're sharing what they just experienced in combat with their loved ones. And to be frank, it boils down to they're just spending less time talking to each other because they were so connected to the outside world. So, so I, it raised a, an idea for me to go through this journey of exposing what is the Band of Brothers effect? How does it happen? Why does it matter? Both in the moment of combat, but really for the rest of their lives. It's funny, as you've been talking, I keep going back to around the same time in 2008. We didn't know each other at the time, but I was deployed, I don't know, a couple miles south of you. Uh, and the first week I got to this, this small fob in East Baghdad, fob loyalty, there was this Connex, uh, a shipping container really, but it had been outfitted as, as I guess, sort of an MWR spot with maybe six computers with internet connections where soldiers could go and check their email, go on Facebook, whatever they do, uh, use Skype to call their families back home. And, you know, it's pretty tight quarters. There's not a lot of privacy. And I ducked my head in there as I was, you know, kind of getting my bearings on the fob. This was probably my first or second day there. And there's a soldier having, you know, what was a, a seemed like a very agitated conversation, I, I think, over Skype with presumably his girlfriend or wife back home. And, you know, pretty quickly, he sort of loses his temper and yells something to the effect of, you know, how could I be cheating on you? I'm in Iraq with a bunch of dudes. And, you know, at the time, I suppose it was kind of comical. Um, but thinking back on it now during this conversation, okay, sure, that's five or 10 minutes. He's not with the soldiers in his unit. You know, that that individual bit of time, probably not the end of the world from a standpoint of unit cohesion, but more importantly, you know, if that soldier and his wife or girlfriend don't somehow make up pretty quickly and the conversation doesn't end well, where's his head going to be later that day when they're out on patrol? At the same time, you know, I had a cell phone in Iraq. This was before you could have, you know, an iPhone or something and, and be really connected. It was a cheap Nokia phone, but I could call home. And I did. And there were, there were, you know, some tough days when a phone call home to talk to a family member, even just for a couple minutes, really helped. So I guess my question is, is there a balance to be struck between, you know, on one hand, the goodness that can come from some degree of connectivity with, you know, with the outside world. And on the other hand, any sort of deleterious impact that connectivity can have if, you know, for example, as you said, it means soldiers aren't processing uh, traumatic experiences together or, you know, if it's otherwise disrupting the cohesion building processes. A absolutely. And this is the, not the pushback, but the real questions. This is, this is hard stuff, leading soldiers in combat. It's hard stuff. So every individual soldier is a complex social being with complex motivations 
morale and, and, and their, how they fit into the part of the actual combat effectiveness, combat mission. Absolutely. There are a lot of positives and, and, and it, there is no controlling this, right? So this ideal that I'm my, one of the thesis of this book about these connections have to be managed by leaders is of course that there's huge positives to the morale, um, mental state of a soldier that he has the ability to stay connected to his home. It it has huge positives. And and this is why I, I put this part in my book, in the book about when my wife deployed in 2018, I was a stay at home parent, my kids, they didn't just want, they needed to talk to their mom. It was, it's just a part of their, their, I wanted to talk. And it doesn't matter if you try to take this away from soldiers in some future war, they'll find a way. Soldiers will find a way. And just like in 2003, we were ordering satellite phones um, and paying a lot of money to get a phone to us to be able to connect to back home. But you're right in the, it was different, right? The character of war changes. You might travel six months coming back from a war on a ship and they decompress and, 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 and experience another bonding moment with the people that you had served with. So absolutely. It's a part of which morale is complex. Even a soldier's motivation is complex, but war as a function is a group endeavor. So it has to be a team. So this is where I think in the complexity of leading men and women in combat, leaders have to figure out what moments matter most to forming that cohesion and to create the team. And like, you know, that team might change literally while you're in war, you'll get new people rotating in. Um, But there are things that the military has been doing for a long time that sometimes you don't even know that it's a, it's about building the team in that moment. So I think that this, the, absolutely the time connecting to home it means that they're, they're going to be experiencing the the challenges of home like they've never have before in history and i put these real examples right the soldier who gets a message that is his girlfriend his pregnant girlfriend is overdosing on drugs and he can't do anything about it wrecked him and he could no longer go out and do his combat mission that's actually leader so my leaders brought to me like hey he can't go out today that that's leadership but leadership is also recognizing that the team, you can you can assess a team's bonds, the way they talk to each other, the way they interact with each other on the day to day, how they're spending their time. That can be adjusted to to ensure that they are bonded as a family. It's literally a combat family. So, pretty much anybody who joins the U.S. military has you know has some period of initial training where they're largely cut off from contact with home. For me, because I commissioned through OCS, that was basic training. And I remember laying in bed the first night at reception before we even got assigned to our basic training platoons, really second guessing all of the decisions I had made in life. It was just a really jarring change that I was struggling with. And yet by the end of that first week, those guys were like my best friends. By the end of nine weeks, I mean, I remember thinking that it was going to be a huge adjustment, you know, to move on to the next thing that had become my world. And and that platoon, those people had become my people. You know, I just think it's so striking how quickly you can form those bonds when you're sort of isolated from the outside world. But, you know, as technology evolves, we would be foolish to think we can ever really replicate that outside of that initial training environment, maybe for short periods. 
as you said, soldiers are going to find a way. Uh, but in any case, it's, it's just not realistic. Given that, you know, what steps can, specifically, what steps can leaders take to recreate that cohesion that develops naturally in a setting where, you know, where technology-driven connectivity is absent? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And this is the like, what's your answer, John? What's, so I don't have all the answers. I ask a lot more questions than I provide answers. I try to give examples in 2008 of things that either I did or just by her circumstance of the environment, changes that were made that I could see a noticeable change in cohesion between my soldiers. And, and absolutely, in contrasting my 2003 experiences with my 2008 connected combat experience, I'm not saying at all that the soldiers that I was with in 2008 didn't form lifelong bonds. And like you said, it's, it's really human. And if you've experienced, uh, a, 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 a certain amount of time with somebody and it, and it is so real that you, you actually form a lifelong friendship with that person or in this situation as a team that happened in 2008. And some of my soldiers did, but let me tell you about some of the things that were changed as I arrived to a unit. So one of the other driving motivations of me to write this book was the book called black arts which is actually used at West Point um, to teach real leadership, right? Real experiences, leading people in really complex combat environments. I mean, that book really touched me because I had experienced something similar where a, a unit was struggling to, to perform. Um, so I think my, a certain portion of my book is really the black hearts with a better ending not necessarily because of the decisions I made. Some of them were leadership decisions that were just clear decisions that had to be made by me. But like the the actual act of people spending time together. Uh, so we moved in 2008 and we had to rearrange living spaces to where more people were living closer together, like literally proximity, which is has been researched as well. We, in an all-volunteer force, we we actually do have to play to individual motivations. In a in a, drunk, a protracted counterinsurgency, we had to play to individual motivations and give them as many morale boosting things as we could. But one of the things that I think was done was this idea of individuality of a soldier's personal space of his personal time. That is a reduction in group time. Right, you used to go to basic training in open bays. You you're just around another person. So in 2008 we were shoved into an, a a smaller base where people had to just had to live together closer together like rooms of 6 to 8 soldiers in a single chew which is almost inhumane in proximity and the smells were all well, audacious uh but another aspect is eating together right so there's there's a reason at west point why there's a mandatory time that they eat together not every meal not every class but there's a lunch and i do it with my family and it, it is human that if you're just spending time, uninterrupted time together, it just happens to be you're breaking bread together, that you're bonding with that person. When I, in 2008, you know, the system had been evolving so quickly that there was a 24-hour meal service and you could just walk in and get your food whenever you want. You kind of broke off. As we were progressing as a unit, we moved to an installation where, no, there was a set time that you had to go eat, go eat together as a squad or as a platoon. And that, I think, was a contributing factor of creating these moments, right? There's a lot of time, especially in war, but in, in our lives. And is, but is that time creating a real 
transformational, real relationship with somebody? Or is it just transactional? And it's about doing the job. Even if it's you know, going outside on a patrol, is it just about doing the job? Are we actually spending time forming together? So really you can break it down, John, into we know that how do you form cohesive teams? The U.S. military knows it's through shared hardships. We'll, we'll, we'll actually create those shared hardships just to further create teams, right? We do really hard exercise events. We may do field training events. We may do, you know, climb a mountain together. Those shared hardships, when you do something physical and hard together, there's really bonding experiences with that. And a lot of people have devoted their lives to this, creating these shared hardship moments. Combat gives you that, right? Like you're all facing the fear of death together and it bonds you together. Well, the other one, which research shows is just as important to bonding a team is literally just spending time talking to each other. Uh, there, there's a guy at the work, the Army War College, Dr. Lenny Wong, who I used a lot of his research that showed through survey-based analysis that that's how people formed friendships and brotherhood. It's literally, I know that person that's on my team at a very personal level. So it's not a matter of, it is a matter of, of priorities and time, but it's how those any time spent together is is designed to form bonds between members of the team, whatever echelon of the team it is. So sleeping together, eating together, um, talking about things. Like if you went out on a combat patrol and you had a real bad event, you come back and you talk about it. I messed up as a leader and I didn't enforce that last one as much as I could have designed the debrief, the post-patrol activities to force doesn't have to be a, you know, a huge amount of time, but let for this amount of time after this stressful event, we're going to sit around and talk about it as a group. Because I think that would identify, and we know it identifies issues too, because not all people experience the same situation together um, or not all people are dealing with different stresses. And usually you'll tell somebody you trust, this is about your know, trust, of course, is a bedrock of the army. But if you trust another person, you'll tell them about your your stresses, your problems. It could be about a patrol that you just dealt with, or it could be something back home that you now know about. And that's why I really wanted to put that that issue of the soldier, the pregnant girlfriend overdosing on drugs. Like, what could we do? But the fact that he brought that to us w was showing that the, the, the bond and the team was there. I'm curious what echelons you think this is most important at you know it's one thing for a soldier to be willing to take a bullet for a teammate or you know for somebody sharing a foxhole so to speak is it realistic though to scale that sentiment across our very large army and even further across the joint force you know we have we have these layers of identity and it's natural to identify more closely and form closer bonds with you know, those people that we know personally and trust and share experiences with and, and, you know, witness each other's emotions. The case for small unit cohesion is a pretty straightforward one to make, I think. Although, as, as you've made clear so far in this conversation, there's certainly a lot of nuance uh, to appreciate. But at, say, the brigade level with, you know, with, you know, a few thousand soldiers or even larger formations, is it possible to create a similar level of cohesion? And is it as important so great question. And, and, I, and I tried to, I wrestled with this even reflectively of my own experiences. 
So one, I think the cohesion is a part of the identity, right? Every, from a, as a 17 year old child, little kid, you know, young man joining the military, I was searching for meaning and I was searching for identity. The beautiful thing about the military is it gives people identity by, by default, assigning you to a unit, assigning you to a service, to an MOS, to a unit, um, all the way down to a squad or team that becomes a part of your identity that I think we all want. And some people will take that identity and it will be a huge part of their identity for the rest of their lives. So literally the cohesion is the identity. And there's research about you know, that establishes group norms of what is right and what is wrong, what is valued by the group, where you really value being a part of the group so much so that you're willing to sacrifice for the group, right? I did this throughout my military career, even not in combat. Like I valued being a part of, let's say the 75th Ranger Regiment so much so that I would make decisions that were, you know, not only about me. It was about, I wanted to be a part of this group because it was a part of my identity, right? So this is where it starts to tangle with esprit de corps, identity, group norms. It, it is... It is complex, but the idea of primary group cohesion, um, there is a, a limit to knowing somebody at an interpersonal level, right? Um, I think it maxes out like at 150, which oddly is about the max of a company where you can really know people at an interpersonal level. But I think it, it is, and I think that the Army does this a lot in other services, that it, it does come down to your your squad, right? Those Those people that you know so intimately because you're just spending that amount of time. But that isn't to say that you won't do a lot for a, a unit patch or just because you are identifying yourself with this group. As a matter of fact, you will sacrifice. There's even some old you know, research by one of my mentors about even during Wellington's campaign, right? People that just really don't have a, a group identity, but they have a small group. If you do something wrong, you, you aren't risking shame or whatever. You're risking your ability to be a part of that group um, and they would kick you out of the group. So I think to answer your question, it's at a very, very low level, but you can have a spree to the core. You can have task cohesion. You can have a shared understanding of what the mission is, a shared understanding of what we do as a, as a citizen of the United States, as a member of the U S military, all the way down to 82nd, whatever unit you stand for. Um, some people have a stronger identity and a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to get that identity really rapidly, but it is intermixing of these different ideals of cohesion, esprit de corps, motivation, morale. It, I think the, that primary group cohesion is the, the, the bedrock of it all to include, I think one of the, you know, the whole army slogans, right? The army is an all volunteer force. It, it, it has to deal with a lot of complexity and in, in, in not only motivating somebody to join the military, but sustaining that motivation, you know, the, the giving somebody identity, I think is a huge part of that. And that's why things like not in my squad, I th I'm a, such a huge fan of that, that one slogan because, you know, the army's gotten it kind of wrong, right. A couple of times, but just that ideal, which goes back to the band of brothers effect, I believe not in my squad, because this, this squad has identified what is the group's accepted norms of what they're going to do day to day and certain fun activities like treating people badly, bullying, 
sexual assaults, all this stuff is it's not accepted in our group because we identify as a group. A lot of this conversation, in part because of your background, you served as an infantry officer, these experiences you've shared are from your time as a small unit leader in combat. A lot of this stuff seems sort of self-evident when we're when we're talking about it in a combat arms context. You know, but what about other specialties? Um, you know, when we launched the Spear podcast a few years back, you and I were bouncing ideas off of each other, and we really wanted it to explore the combat experience. You were also one of the first guests on the Spear. You shared some phenomenal stories of your time in combat. But for the first handful of episodes, most of the stories we featured were from guests like you, guests with a, with a, with a combat arms background, more often than not an infantry background. Over time, we were able to widen that aperture a little bit, which is which is fairly easy, actually, when we're talking about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, when a resupply convoy could get ambushed or there's an assault against an outpost or, uh, you know, a mortar or rocket attack against a base, anybody really could find themselves, you know, pretty suddenly at the tip of the spear. That's why we called the podcast The Spear. Eventually, you know, sort of the third stage was we tried to push the boundaries even further in terms of featuring guests and stories that... You know, they really challenged our conceptualization of combat. We featured, um, as I'm sure you remember, we featured a British officer who led a unit involved in the in the response to the Russian Novichok attack, uh, the poison attack in Salisbury a few years ago, for example. You know, or, or, or cyber, for instance. This is another one I think about. There are cyber operations that occur that have very little in common kinetically with your combat experiences. But... You know, but they can nonetheless be a decisive operation, just like a large-scale combined arms assault can be. So, for a cyber unit, or a logistics unit, or a finance unit, or an intelligence—you uh, know—an intelligence staff section—is cohesion as important? You know, would would task cohesion be be sufficient there? You know, I, I know that's a bit of a leading question, I suppose, but assuming it is just as important as in combat units, I guess the bigger question is why? And, you know, and are there unique challenges to fostering it in in units that aren't typically engaged in in combat as we traditionally define it? So is it less important? Absolutely not. Is is it, are there other challenges? Absolutely um, there are a lot of challenges to to create cohesion for a purpose. So I think this translates again to human nature of wanting identity, wanting to be valued as a member of a group, right? You have people like Sebastian Younger have beautifully written things about like tribe, the brotherhood, all these things. But if you really again start to peel back the onion, it is about con- um indoctrinating people into your group so they recognize that they are a, a the team cannot win and i don't mind using that term literally this team cannot win without you as a valued member of the team it l- literally doesn't work that's task cohesion right but the social cohesion part of it is where it actually matters more in this this game that we play it's not a game but literally the pursuit of war and national or the pursuit of national interest in war. I think even when I was younger as an infantry soldier, right? There is this, always this, this ability to say this part of group dynamics that you want to be better than other groups, right? So that that's an infantry, that's an MOS. That's a thing. Like we're the most important, right? Out of the, 
you really can echelon it up to groups like army level like okay we infantry are the the tip yeah the, the close battle and i if i was younger you would have tried to convince me like well you're not going to get there without logistics you literally can't survive without water um this is that shared understanding i think that is leadership is getting individuals to understand their role in the team getting the team to understand their role in the the upper level team and you can echelon that all the way up to the army wide and i think this war exposes this right so even in let's say the battles of ukraine uh the ukraine explosion in war how it all the combat arms are necessary at different moments of time or to achieve whatever and i've met so many people that like i did i just didn't get it right when i've met people that were like live and die by by armor by tank like they had so much pride in being a member of that mos and in as an infantryman I, I i can i don't get it like hey we're the most important like hey but like 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 historically i can show you where no that they were the most important but it's it's all teamwork but i think this is the complexity absolutely whether you're in the space force or uh you name the mos there's nothing that's of less value but as you echelon this as the as the individual leader of a small group that's part of leadership is to, is providing inspiration and motivation and getting them to understand that every individual you're giving them what they want which is they want identity and they want to be valued by the group so they can then translate that back to their own individual value but i can't you can't you can't show me a team especially in the u.s military where it isn't they aren't a a huge part of actual success in winning for a military if not they would have done they they go away right as war changes we will do away with certain functions because it's not a vital part of achieving dominance and destroying our enemies but you i you know i'm older now so i'm a lot more reflective but that's what was happening my entire career is that people were were showing me that not only was i a valuable part of their team but our function was a vital part of achieving success and that's the role of leaders. So on that role of leaders, we have talked a lot about some of the ways that technology, the advancement of technology has has maybe disrupted cohesion building. You contrasted your experiences in, in 2003 when nobody had a phone, there was no internet access, Facebook didn't even exist with your experiences in 2008. But, you know, this isn't necessarily a, a new phenomenon. I imagine that you know, reasonably timely mail delivery had an impact, radio and and the ability to hear about things going on outside of, you know, of, of literally what you can see had an impact. Transportation technology that made it possible to travel home for leave in the middle of a deployment, I'm sure, had an impact. So we can probably assume that, that this is not a challenge that's going to go away. So if we accept that it's a problem, and if you were given the power to address it, say the army brought you in and said, whatever you need, we'll support you. Would it be more effective for you to focus on all of the junior leaders at that small unit level, the captains, lieutenants, and NCOs, and work with them on on the skills that are most effective at fostering cohesion? Or would you work with the you know, the senior leaders on on, on setting conditions and establishing a culture that, that is most I guess conducive to developing to developing cohesion. Yes. 
<laughs> it's so actually so it, it's funny you say that because i actually was a part of that that or that group that, that organization that that led me again to this book i was a part of a a army wide team looking at the army's personnel problem of suicides depressions and, and it was called the ready and resilient campaign so i was assigned to the pentagon into the u.s army g1's office and literally this team if one i learned that if congress says you have a problem then it doesn't matter if you have a problem you have a problem although the army did, did have a problem at the time it was it was under a lot of stress and then again stress exposes your vulnerabilities so as a part of this team thinking through this i mean can i i think everybody in the army's doesn't matter if you're the the corporal or the general is in the business of cohesion is in the business of forming identity because that's the whole and i i don't i, I have no problems with relating to sports or using sports analogies or about teams and teamwork everybody's in that business if i was to say where do you put your time and money your investments i do think it is at the bedrock of the army that that's where your greatest adversities will happen and either be changed solved a climate is at the is really at that squad level so i would be doing a lot more investments in squad leaders in echelon but like i said everybody's in the business identity everybody's in the business of building cohesive teams now how do you develop an education package that instills not only the the knowledge on how to do that but the daily practices that you're the, the army does this, but sometimes it needs course correction. It needs emphasis from people like this army of the army, and, I, and and it all works. But when put under stress, people need constant reminding. People need you know higher level concepts distilled down to very small messages and reminding of what's what matters most. I actually signed my book now stay connected to what matters most which is almost again a, a very complex statement as much as the band of brothers theory connected soldiers is that if everything's important nothing's important and the army has struggled with that as well there's only so much time in the day uh, but small unit leaders are in the business of training lethal teams but they're, they're usually some will add in their cohesive lethal teams and I think we need to spend more time, not episodically, not in just professional military education, about showing the lowest level leaders, how do you build cohesive teams? How do you assess it? Because I think we, we actually aren't that good about assessing the bonds between a small group of individuals. And that's really hard to do, but that's where the most amount of time, and that's why, again, why I love the concept of not in my squad. I do believe that I also am a student of war and understand that, you know, armies fight, right? Large formations fights. Um, but it matters in what a leader says. And I think when you asked me this question about radio and telegrams and how a, a message from a president, like President Zelensky, a single sentence message that is translated down to the lowest private can have huge cohesive properties as in cohesive like we're fighting a part of a larger group right we're part of a, a part of a nation this is why we're part it all matters 
but the individual, and this is where I think more training can be done. The individual soldier and the individual small unit team is a complex feature of just three things, morale, which is ebbs and flows, it goes ups and up, up and you can serve them a crappy meal and morale is going to dip, you know, you name it, but it's morale, it's motivation. And that motivation is individually as a team, as a nation, as a fighting force, and then cohesion. People intermix the three, right? Motivation, morale, cohesion. They kind of inter- intermix it, will to fight. But it all it matters at the even at the senior level. A, a, like and Zelensky has shown it. Like a single message can give you so much cohesive properties, so much motivational and and boost morale on a day-to-day basis that it's unmeasurable. But it's important. And it and that's understanding of when the right time the right message, the right words come out of somebody's mouth, either bond somebody together or it could actually break them apart. Well, John, I think we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast and talking about, you know, what's really an important topic and, and congratulations again on the book. Again, it's called connected soldiers. I really enjoyed it. I uh, really learned a lot from it. I suspect it's one that a lot of our listeners will also enjoy and and also learn a lot from. So, so thank you for for um, you know for a really great conversation. Thanks, John. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing: if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to get in touch with us and stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.